0: to the Chris Collinsworth podcast. And um, it's been an interesting week in the NFL this week. I got a chance to see the leading scoring team in the NFL and Tom Brady shut out. (laughs) So it's unbelievable. The last time, two times actually, that we've done New Orleans at Tampa, I want to say they scored zero points this time. And I think it was just three points the last time those two teams got together if there's ever been a team that has somebody's number it is the new orleans saints it's dennis allen And what they did in Tampa was just unbelievable. So we'll talk about that a little bit on the back end of this thing. But I want to welcome in my uh, special guest, one of my favorite guys, Eric Eager, who is the uh, head of research and development and innovation, something like that, Eric, am I even
1: remotely close on what your job description is? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's um, interesting. The uh, the stat that I, I found is the Bucks have won the Super Bowl twice. Uh, and in both season, they were swept in the regular season by the Saints. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's a little bit of an omen for Tampa Bay here this year, having been swept again by New Orleans. Maybe they'll be the the first team to repeat uh, since Brady took the pats to back to back in 03 and 04. But it's amazing the ramifications that came
0: out of that game. And it it all sort of happened at the same time. You know, Arizona gets stunned by the Lions and everybody's like, what? You know, what was that? And then Baltimore Green Bay going at it. And it looked like it was going to be kind of a casual Green Bay win. Here come the Ravens back with a backup quarterback, Lamar Jackson with the ankle. And they go in and score and I think it's the second straight week, right? Wasn't it Pittsburgh the week before that they go for two and don't make it and don't make it. And when you now look at post that game, when Tampa lost the Green Bay Packers now are in a fantastic position as far as, you know, the tiebreakers, they've got an extra game but now it flip-flops back to the Dallas Cowboys and Green Bay Packers for tiebreakers, and the Cowboys have the better divisional record. I mean, this thing goes on and on and on, right? It's almost like, oh, forget it. I'm not going to pay attention. But I do think that one of the more interesting things that happened during the course of this week was that it was kind of a bad week for analytics. And here we are. I'm I'm pointing a finger right at you. I'm blaming you. I think that PFF has changed the universe. You made the baltimore ravens go for it twice (laughs) for the two-point conversions they lose two games because of it they could have had the division locked up they could have been the number one seed think about if those two point conversions are both made we're talking about the baltimore ravens now as being the it team going into these playoffs
1: yeah. They're the one seed in the AFC, right? They would be 10 and four right now. They, they beat Kansas city uh, in your week two game on Sunday night football. So they would be the one seed. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, it's interesting, right? Like, because w- when you look at um, you know, the way in which the league has evolved um, we are getting so many more. We're, it, we're getting so many more opportunities to scrutinize this, these decisions, right? Because, you know, like i'm I'm doing this article right now where I'm looking at like basically first three quarters of a game, fourth and four or less, um, you know, sort of places where math would tell you to go for it, but teams maybe don't go for it. It took until two thousand and sixteen for any team in the NFL to go for those situations more than half the time, Chris. And that was three teams in two thousand and sixteen. The Eagles, the Saints, the Giants, um, the Eagles, by the way, the next year were one of four teams to go for it more than 50% of the time. And they won the Super Bowl. They won it on in your you're the last time you broadcast the game with two high profile fourth down decisions. And net, this season, 18 teams are doing it more than 50% of the time. So like it, it, it's interesting. The analytic, the, 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 the I call it like sort of evidence based footballing. Evidence based footballing is winning, right? Teams are going for it more. And and as such, you're going to get the other side of variance, right? Like you're going to get a team like the Chargers who have five fourth down attempts. They make two of them, but the three that they miss, of course, they leave points on the table and they end up losing a game in overtime to Kansas City. You have, you know, Baltimore who, interestingly, Baltimore like the going for two at the end of a game isn't necessarily like the most analytical thing in the world because, you know, of the time left and all that Harbaugh really made those two fourth, the two, two point conversions decisions based upon the football context in which he was playing against Pittsburgh three weeks ago, Marlon Humphrey had just went down with a, with an injury. And so he was like, if I get into overtime, I just gave up 17 points in the fourth quarter I'm I, my best player on defense is gone. Let's just win the game now or lose the game. Now let's get out of here. Um, and I think he thought the exact same thing about the green Bay game. The funny thing about the green Bay game is usually you want to go for the two point conversion after the first touchdown, when you're down 14, Correct. The, the second one is sort of the one where people are a little bit like, well, you, you left, you still have 40 seconds left on the clock for green Bay and all this kind of stuff. So uh, it, it was an interesting week. I, I do think, like I said, Playing football with evidence on your side is going to work long-term, but there are going to be instances just like anybody who's played, you know, blackjack or or whatever. There are going to be instances where you make the right play and you don't get the right result, And, and, and I think um, it's important for folks like us to sort of educate people on, you know, why we're continuing to to sort of advocate for these decisions.
0: Yeah. The hard part is that so many of the really controversial decisions uh, and depends on what you plug into the algorithm, right? I mean, it, you can show anything you want with math sometimes and stats and data, but for the most part, the really hard ones are probably 51, 49, 52, 48 kind of decisions. Yep. And so occasionally you've got to step back and go, oh yeah, yeah. 52 out of a hundred, I win. 48 times out of a hundred, I lose and look like a dope. And I take all the criticism in all the newspapers on all the radio shows, every coach who's an old school coach smugly looks and goes, yeah, that's one of those, uh, analytic dumbasses losing another game. Right. I mean, you can just hear it. And the minute it happens, the minute it goes the other way, it is this, this, roaring ocean that comes back at you because i told you so like they can't wait i told you so
1: yeah and and i think i mean we've seen this it's always going to be it's always going to need to be the uh, the basically the the it's always going to need to be somebody established who does it right because we saw like take for example chip kelly who when he was with philadelphia he won what, he was 20 and 12 his first two years with Nick Bowles, Mark Sanchez, guys like that as his uh quarterbacks. And, you know, he did it differently, right? He he monitored players' sleep, he, he, you know, monitored their diets, he ran an offense that was sort of college-y, right? Like, and whenever somebody comes into a situation like that and they're different, the old guard wants that person to fail, right? And and we're way more likely to. jettison somebody who fails by themselves then fails slowly with the pack you know what I mean and and that's you know that that's just and and again when you get into that group of the 32 sort of men who get to coach NFL teams you want to like your incentives are different than you and my incentives right like if I bet on a team to win my incentives are a lot different right as a fan but also as somebody with skin in the game than a coach who's trying to lose less uh, less embarrassingly right and you know that's what we saw with with chip like he was you know 10 and 6 two years he goes 6 and 9 in year 3 and they fire him before the season's over right whereas you have other guys who you know like and I, I don't want to throw out names but you have guys like Doug Marone who have you know basically all their seasons are losing seasons except for one and they get a lot more time uh, at the plate you had like uh, you know, uh, Jason Garrett, for example, got a, basically a decade with Dallas, at basically you know up and down. But again, if you sort of like go with conventional wisdom, people are going to be less likely to want to root for your failure. And, and what's nice is that when you see a guy like Doug Peterson do different things and win, when you see a guy like John Harbaugh, who in my for my money is a Hall of Fame coach, do it this way, then again, you know, to me. That helps embolden the Brandon Staleys to do it the the evidence-based way because they know that they have some cover. And and they and you know it's not fair, but like we're gonna look back and say, well, they beat the Chiefs in week three because they went for fourth downs and they made a bunch of them. that's they exactly, beat, the, point. That's exactly the point. They beat Cleveland. They beat Cleveland. They beat Cleveland in large part because they went for fourth down on their own end. And they got blown out by the Ravens because they went for fourth down on their own end and they missed. You know what I'm saying? So it's, it's again, you sort of end up with a little bit better of an average, but the swings maybe are, are not something we're comfortable with.
0: It, it is amazing that you rarely get credit for success when taking chances, especially in the middle of the drive. People literally forget about it. In the middle of the drive, it's always the scoring opportunities. But I, I did want to bring up one thing that happened to Brandon Staley in that game. So, and I'm gonna I'm gonna freely admit here, I did not see this live. I came in later in the game. Um, but they before the half, my understanding is that they could have taken a field goal before they went in at halftime, right? They chose to go mm-hmm. for it, got no points, momentum swing, whatever you want to say. But I know a big part of the analytical advantage of going for it down around the goal line on fourth down is at worst, you're going to leave them down there, right? So the field position shift is still going to come back to you because you're going to assume you're going to get the ball back in good field position. Does the math change any? for that situation in other words is there a stronger argument for taking the field goal there because you don't get the field position advantage that you would in ordinary circumstances
1: yes absolutely and it also like the so this is the thing i think is the is a is a great discussion topic right because a lot of people will say so like there's the mike lombardi tweet where he said like you know analytics can't you know every situation's different blah 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 and it's like Yes, but the models take those all into consideration. I mean, you've seen George and I, you know, with your broadcasts, the inputs are down, distance, time left, right? How much time is left on the clock? Uh, you know, uh, how many timeouts each team has? The other variable is who gets the ball to start the second half, right? Because that matters too, and, um, and and so on and so forth, right? So, But the, the biggest thing is, like, yes, that is taken into consideration because you're right, like, one of the benefits of missing a fourth down um, in the middle of a game, deep is that the other team's backed up, and and you sort of saw that right with the. Uh, it, it's a little bit different because it was because of a fumble, but one of the other miscues that the Chargers had in that game was jo- uh, Joshua Kelly fumbled at the goal line, and the Chiefs recovered at like the one, and like two plays later, they got an interception by Nicheno Owosu and scored on the next play, right? Like you put your the other team in a bad position when you back them up like that. And, and that's part of the calculus going into the half. I do agree. Like the reason that it was positive EV for the chargers to go for it in that situation was because they were literally at the one yard line. And, you know, if they were at like the six or seven yard line, like the first drive of the game, I guarantee you the models would have said, Hey, kick a field goal, because the benefits of, you know, your likelihood of making this, this this uh, conversion is way too little to justify giving up on the, the possibility for three points. So, yeah, I, I think in that one, the Chargers got kind of like stuck because literally they, their offense gaining one yard is more li- is more than 50 percent. And kicking a field goal, obviously, if you think about just like how many points do you expect 50 percent of seven is three and a half points which is more than the most you can get on a field goal. If you back that up to like, let's say the three yard line, then let's say you're one in three of making it, making that, then, you know, uh, then, you know, 33% of seven is less than three, right? So then you, you, the math would say to kick the field goal because you don't get any of the second order benefits of backing a team up.
0: You know, and, and a lot of times who the opposing quarterback is, like mm-hmm. I make the case all the time on Sunday night is that, does it really make a difference if I punt the football and I give it to Aaron Rodgers on the 20 or I go for it here at midfield and don't make it? Is Are those 30 yards or 40 yards, whatever, that significant because this guy is so efficient? I used to say it about Tom Brady before I watched the Saints game the other night, but now I, I don't do that. So it is, um, you know, it, it, it's just... Matter of fact, that has got to be the... Six straight time, my phone has rung, and I've forgotten to turn off my phone in the middle of one of these podcasts. It's it's a total and utter it, it just it post. just
1: humanizes you, Chris. Remember, like the uh you know that never yeah, now now everybody knows that like Chris Collinsworth is just a little bit like all of them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there were a lot of doubts as to whether I was human. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly which category they would put me in, but uh, I think I've read them all on social media. It was so funny. Andy Freeland the other day I said Andy I go you know because I, I you make mistakes on live television but usually if when you do um social media within 15 seconds goes wham beat you over the head right and you know it immediately and so I said you know just pay attention for me who's the guy who's in the booth with me uh, on social media just keep up with it a little bit and so he did. And he never he didn't say anything during the course of the game. And I said, well, how did the uh, social media experiment go? He goes, well, I've learned that without a doubt that you are completely biased against both teams. <laughs> I go, Welcome to my world. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. So, um, but but it does make a difference and we're getting into that right about who the other quarterback is does that go into the model itself who the opposing quarterback is when you decide to go for it on fourth down
1: yep i mean in the model that we feed you guys for for sunday night football like the quarterback is the, is one of the key variables right cuz like that it it does and it's it, it comes up in ways that you might not expect right where um sometimes you want to go for it more because the other team's quarterback is amazing and field position doesn't matter. Sometimes it's, you know, you want to kick it because of the same reason, because, you know, let's say, um, you know, like, let's say it's, it's to go up 10, for example, when you're up seven, like you, you, there might be a reason I I'm blanking on like why you would want to kick it to be honest with you, but like, but there are reasons why you want to kick it in the case of the other team's quarterback being amazing. There's also the, there's also the confluence of your quarterback where like I always think it's it's interesting, you know, to sort of like look at how defenses approach the game when they have, let's say, a Patrick Mahomes at quarterback versus when they have, you know, more, maybe somebody a little bit more limited, let's say a Jalen Hurts at quarterback, where it's like you can be more aggressive because you know if you give up a score, you know, Pat's got your, you know, Pat's gonna go ahead and get have your back. And I do I think like when I when we talk about like the Chargers, for example, that's very much why I think that they're comfortable going for as many fourth downs as they are because they have a great quarterback and they know that like, he's going to cover a multitude of sins. If you're down by seven, like you're never out of the game with Justin Herbert. And whereas, you know, one of the things, and and again, this is where I get back to the point of like, you know, when we're trying to argue these things on good faith, we look at the Saturday night game, right. Where the, the new England Patriots are at the seven yard line down by 13 with a little bit, like maybe half of a quarter left, and they kick a field goal to go down 10, right? Where they lose that game, right? And like the question becomes, and they and they lose that game interestingly because they, they, they never got within that one score again, right? Where to me, I, the question is, is like why is that decision made about Mac Jones? In that game, it's sort of like the quarterback to me mattered more in why you should go for it there because Mac Jones was like barely crossing the 50-yard line all game What's the likelihood if you go from being down 13 to down 10 and give up the opportunity you have to be inside the 10 again? What's the likelihood that Mac Jones is going to get you in a scoring position two more times? Like, that's the way that I sort of think about it from my own quarterback's perspective, too.
0: Tis the season of giving, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is giving you a Christmas present that you're not going to want to re-gift. New customers can bet just $5 on any of the four NFL teams playing on Christmas and win $150 in free bets if you're victorious. Why not win some green and put some extra jingle in your pocket? If Sportsbook isn't available in your state, your Christmas can still be merry. Everyone can play for huge cash. Prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with the very first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now, use promo code PFF, bet just $5 on any NFL team to win on Christmas Day and win $150 in free bets if you are victorious, that's promo code PFF this Christmas at DraftKings Sportsbook. then official sports betting partner of the NFL must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit, $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Want a chance to win the ultimate game day feast? Who would? Well, whether it's football success or financial savvy, winning starts with asking us questions. Would you like to know more about the behind the scenes of Sunday Night Football with Al Michaels? How about a need to know for your financial future? Well, now you can ask about either or both. Every football or financial question you ask earns you a chance to win a catered party for February's big game. So all you gotta do is ask a question. PFF will throw a party worth up to 2,500 bucks for the big game in February. We know what that is for up to 25 guests. And the winner can choose whatever the heck kind of food that you want this week's question comes from jeffrey in california who was the toughest defensive back you ever played against i am going to say there's some really good ones uh mike haynes out there was really good i'm gonna say mel blount mel blount with the pittsburgh Steelers was so big i mean he looked like he was i don't know what his actual size was he's probably six four but his arms were so long and typically you know dbs and cornerbacks are little short guys and you kind of swat their hands off of you and you just go about your business but mel blunt was big strong he drilled you at the line of scrimmage he could run as fast as you could run And back in the day, he could sort of beat you up as you were running down the field. And my goodness, if you caught a pass and you took a hit from that guy, it was not a comfortable feeling. So there were a lot of great ones. There really were. I'm going to take Mel Blunt because I can remember lining up across from him my rookie year and going, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) They were something else. Anyway, so submit your questions at westernsouthern.com slash Chris. I'm still shaking about Mel Blunt. One more time, that is westernsouthern.com slash Chris. If you're watching on YouTube, check out the link in the description below. Remember, with Western and Southern, you can rest assured on game day. Let's talk for just a minute about Chris Godwin. So I'm doing the Tampa game. And we've seen it a million times before, you know, a guy catches the ball on a crossing route um, and comes up and chops out his knee and now it's an ACL. So he's punished a guy with 100 catches. Tom Brady goes off. I went off during the course of the broadcast uh, because if there's ever a case you played tight end in college, you understand Mm -hmm. this. Um, There's there's no way to protect yourself. I, I don't care. You can talk about a quarterback, a punter, whatever you want to talk about. There is no worse position to be in than being a receiver with somebody flying at you from the back end and they're going to take out your knees. Right. So why do they do that? Um, a the defensive backs have been trained. Now you can't go high. Don't you can't hit them in the helmet. If you hit them in the neck, head or neck, So what's the surest way I'm going to go get them on the ground? And 100%, it is absolutely easier to make the tackle if you chop out their knees than if you hit them at the waist. No question about it. So the strategy of it, the legality of it, there's no question about it. But we are protecting everybody else on the football field except that player in that situation, and there's no way in hell he can protect himself. And – that's just the way it is, and they've never changed it.
1: Yeah, and it's it's so hard. I know George Shahuri and I were sort of arguing about this in the office uh, while the game was going on because the other thing is, like, football is so hard. It's so hard to play defensive back that when, when we see, like, a helmet hit a knee, like, we, we, we assume that they're, they're, the intent is that, when in reality, like – you can't like lower a shoulder without also lowering your head. You know what I mean? In most cases. And so like, if the play goes a little bit differently, then you're, you're hitting the guy with your helmet on his knee. And like, that is not great. I think the hard, hard part is, is obviously we've legislated away the head injury stuff, which I think we have to do. If you legislate away the knee stuff, like there's no really place where a defensive back can cause an incompletion when the play, when the players open, you know what I mean? So my solution, and I don't know like what you think of this, Chris, because it could have cascading effects, but you play wide receiver at, you know, at the highest level. And the to me, the issue is, is these receivers just they're running too fast, right? Like if you made illegal contact legal again, or legal like it is in college, let's say, I think you eliminate a lot of these, right? Because the wide receivers aren't running those crossers as fast as they humanly can, right? And you know they're they're not uh, wide open the way that you know in a, in the way that you have to make that hit in order to cause an incompletion. To me, I think that's and I and I know that you it's hard to put the the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, you know, two thousand four, that Marcus Pollard, you know, when he was dragged to the turf every single game against Belichick, that's the one that they like sort of changed the rule on or, or emphasized it more. But if you did that, I think receivers. Um, you know wouldn't be necessarily moving as fast and that's really where you see all these head injuries and and leg injuries is where the receiver is sort of running these digs or crossers and they're not touched because they can't be touched right Um, where if you allow a little bit more of contact downfield during the course of the route you would cause these collisions would be less violent I think and you would end up with maybe a little bit fewer of these injuries
0: Actually, I'm going to take the other side of that. I think a big reason why we're seeing more of those balls thrown is because you can't hit them in the head. As funny as that Mm -hmm. sounds like at some point. Like, I had so many sets of stitches in my chin. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was like, ridiculous. My chin still needs a plastic surgeon. Um, but at some point, the quarterbacks start feeling sorry for you, right? If they're dragging you off the field and stitching you up too many times in a row, he's like, okay, I'm not going to throw that YOLO ball over the middle anymore. Now these guys are protected. They know they can't get hit in the helmet. So what are we getting? We're getting power forwards in the middle of the field. Going up and making catches against 5'11 and 6-foot defensive backs, it's a great strategy. It's absolutely a great strategy. So when, and when I talk to defensive backs about trying to protect those guys, they all say the same thing. It's like, dude, you got 270-pound tight ends out here. How do you expect me to get them on the ground? You think I can tackle that guy if I go up high on him? I've got to go in here and chop his knees. And you think of Gronkowski and all the different shots that he's taken uh, to his knees over the years, and, and, and you understand it. Um, but I also have asked a lot of wide receivers, almost everyone I interview, and I say, okay, you get one protection, right? You can either have your head protected or you can have your knees protected. Which one do you want? 100%. 100% of them said, protect my knees. I, 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 I have a good chance of surviving a blow to the head in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying I always will. But you take out my knees and I'm going in for surgery and now I'm a tenth of a second slower the next year, my career's over. Please protect my knees. And I, I, understand, I understand all points of it um it's just it's so brutal it's like watching you know it's just it's just brutal to watch it happen during a game
1: yeah and I think I mean especially at the professional level I think this this is obviously also you know pertinent to the COVID discussion I think after you know two years now like once you're a professional especially now in the NFL I mean, you you know what the risks are with respect to concussions, right? I mean, even like I played in you know college back in like my last game was 07. So still a long time ago. I mean, you, we watched the videos the first day at practice. They try to scare the heck out of you. Uh, neck injuries and head injuries and stuff. And, you know, even like small ball division two players, like they know the risk and they're willing to take it. I mean, that's how enticing football is. And you know, I think, especially when you're a professional again, like none of us really, none of us want to see concussions happen. And I think that there should be a real discussion about what I'm, you know, what I'm talking about, which is, you know, slowing the game down a little bit. So these, these hits are not as jarring and things like that for sure. Um, but with respect to the the risks and the reward, I think players are compensated fairly well um, and they know the risks a priori. Right. So it is. It, it, I don't think it was that countercultural of you to be like, "Hey, look, like this is what players believe." I, because I, because I, I can see it, right? And I know. And and you know, football's everything to a lot of people. And 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 it's and it's not it's not uh, against the rules to 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 you know express that and to and to understand that that's the case. And, and you know, it's 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 incumbent on the league to to make the game such that players aren't like prevention is always easier than cleaning up the mess to begin with, right? Like, so try to find ways to prevent concussions that are different that or and knee injuries that are different than just throwing a flag once it already happens. You know what I mean? Because football is a violent game regardless. So try to make, try to try to make that violence a little bit more conducive to what your, what your, your aims are, as opposed to just legislating it after it happens.
0: I, I really think that because most of these are blindside things, right? So it is a defensive back, and I'm going to narrow it down to a certain category. It's a 190-pound defensive back against a 260-pound tight end. That's the inherent unfairness if you try to legislate anything. And typically, if it's truly a blindside shot, anybody – even myself now if if Gronk were running sideways across the field and I went up and hit him waist high he caught the ball but he moved back towards his own goal line in any way shape or form you know or I stopped mm-hmm. any form of progress could that be considered a tackle in the National Football League because of of whatever I mean because that the essence of what we're talking about and and I think the defensive backs have been put so unfairly uh, at disadvantages in in so many different ways I mean can you imagine trying to tackle one of these guys and last second moving your head out of the way so that your helmet doesn't catch some part you're putting yourself in danger I I know because my son Austin played at Notre Dame played safety I'm like damn it. He's going to get hurt trying to keep the other guy from getting hurt yeah. because he's putting his body in a, in an odd position. Uh, it's hard. It it really is. It's a hard thing to talk about because there's so many different elements to it.
1: Yeah. That that's the thing is like, and I think that again, like trying to figure out why those hits happen or like even like, I, I know I I sent you the video, the article about like what the league is trying to do with kickoffs, right? Like, the league wanted to have fewer kickoffs. So they, they put the uh, kickoff, you know, the touchback to the 25, which like, then now everybody in the league is just kicking it short and covering, right. Because they, 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 they think that, you know, tackling a guy at the 23 is obviously preferable to the 25. But then of course, like that defeats the purpose of the entire rule to begin with, which was to have fewer kickoffs, you know? And so the league has to be, And I I think they are to a certain extent. I mean, you think with the big data bowl and all this stuff, like they really have done a good job of researching the league, but we do, I think we just need to be more creative about, okay, let's, let's keep the spirit of football in place, but let's find ways where you're not putting players in these precarious positions. And I think again, like, you know, making it easier on defensive backs in some parts of the game, but harder in others, I think is more than a fair way. And, and again, like that's just my, my silly solution for that is, is again, just sort of having, um, you know, just allowing the defensive backs to make, to make smaller contact to like shoulders and stuff while the route is happening. And then I think the collisions will be less fierce, but I don't think they'll ever do that because I think that, you know, so much of the passing game now is timing and stuff that it'll cause offenses to struggle for a year or two, which I don't know if they think is good for the product. Although offenses this week, it was the smallest number of touchdowns we've seen in a week in NFL in 27 years or whatever it was, I think, this past week. So, uh, you know, nothing can get kind of worse than what we've seen over the last few days.
0: Yeah, unintended consequences and, you know, circle of life, all that kind of stuff. And the kickoffs, to me, one of the bigger things on the kickoffs is you have to give the receiving team a chance to commit a foul. There are so many fouls called on in kickoff returns that you have to give them a chance to get backed up to their own 10 yard line because somebody held or somebody blocked in the back or somebody did something, which is exactly what happened in the game the other night. I was dying to talk about it and we went right to commercial or something. <laughs> and, and you can, it's unbelievable the number of things in a broadcast that you want to talk about. You got a promo or you got a graphic or you got, and it's like, and you can't go back, you know, once once it's gone, it's gone. You can't do that. All right, final topic. We've got to talk about COVID here a little bit Um, and give them some background as to why I bring this up to you because you do have a background in this.
1: Yeah, my PhD is in mathematical biology, so like I study population dynamics. I've published a few papers in epidemiology, so like I've I have I have some knowledge of how infectious diseases work. I think I have like to me, I think that the biggest thing when you when you get into this field, and I think most people now know that like these things are just uncertain, right? Like, and so if you know that kind of qualitatively how. um, diseases work and this particular one in general you can see sort of the risks and uh, you know our the, one of the producers of the show mike you know back in was january 2020 asked me he's like what what is covid gonna be uh is covid gonna is covid real and i go uh you know make sure you fix yourself a desk at home and he, he you know like uh, because the the thing about covid was that what made it tough was that the asymptomatic aspect of it was like i could i could have covid not know it i could pass it to you. And you could have COVID without knowing it and then pass it to somebody else. And throughout that entire time, it's like pretty basically normal behavior by the two of us, you know, and somebody else gets sick, sort of two, two uh degrees of separation from us. And and that was always the thing about COVID that really scared me was this latency period where it were not even latency period, but just asymptomatic period where you could have the you could have the disease not know it and, and never know it even and pass it to a bunch of other people. And I think that's where the league is sort of is sort of treating those players as if they're not carriers of the disease anymore.
0: Yeah. And, and now the other scary part about this latest variant is that they're saying it's not quite as deadly, but it's much more contagious. Yes. And so now the argument is coming back, like, well, what difference does it make then if I get vaccinated? Because the vaccine's not, you know, doing anything with this variant. I I mean, so I I feel like my head is like going in a circle. Like I I just want to turn on the television, have the smartest doctor that I I can find, tell me what I should do. And then I don't want to think about it anymore. So your opinion, and it's, obviously impacting the NFL right now so much so that the NFL is they're basically changing the rules. So if you're asymptomatic and you're vaccinated, they're basically not going to test you at this point yeah, uh yeah. other than sort of random tests along the way. Oh. Okay, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, is this an effort to get to the end of the season? Is this really what's in everybody's best interest is because they are, you know, 25 people are now testing positive and they can't play football games. So I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to back up and go, I have no idea. You at least have some background in this. What was your take on it?
1: Yeah. The Omicron variant is certainly that that's the thing. It's it's uncertain. And this, to me, I think this, this is good as a, as a topic to have with the fourth down stuff, because you know, we've, we've been like the the scientific community has been wrong about this virus, right? Like at times. And it's important to realize that like the difference between, you know, science and, you know, just sort of trusting your gut is, as you talk about 52, 48, right? 60, 40, right. And there are going to be times where we make missteps, but if you follow the science, you're going to be on that 60 side instead of the 40 side. And that's kind of where you want to be. And so a lot of this is subject to uncertainty, but I'll say this: so the latest CDC data, which was yesterday, the you know basically cases per one hundred thousand people. There's forty eight cases per one hundred thousand people for boosted people, so people who have the vaccine and the booster. One hundred thirty four cases per one hundred thousand for vaccinated, and then four hundred fifty cases per one hundred thousand. For unvaccinated so even if you're just looking at vaccinated for versus unvaccinated it's it's three times as much as as likely to have cases and there are more people by the way who are vaccinated unvaccinated so you you have kind of like also that issue where um it, it's you know it's the base rate fallacy type of idea so the nfl saying okay we're not going to care quite as much about vaccinated players that's the backing there that is basically saying a vaccinated player is way less likely. to to get, to get COVID-19 and hence way less likely to pass it on. The issue becomes obviously if the case counts among, among the vaccinated grow, then you're going to have like, you're still going to have people passing it. And it's not necessarily like no players have died of COVID. There are relatively few players. I think it was Dakota Dozier went to the hospital with it. Like there are some players who have had adverse reactions. There are some players who are rumored to have long COVID the issue that I think the NFL is just hoping the next six weeks to a month to two months will not happen is the community effects, right? Whereas you look at every major city in the country right now, there are overloaded uh, hospitals, which that means that cancer patients can't get in as fast as they want. And, you know, like that's really the second order stuff that I think the NFL is like, okay, we don't have that much of the season left. Let's make sure we get through this and let's hope and then it's really just hope that that these don't have community effects on people who are not on the team. To me, what I would have done is sort of instituted more strict outside of the building protocols. basically don't interact with other people. I, I understand that that is not popular and and probably not, you know. So in my opinion, I think the league is is going partially they're they're partially, I think, data driven by what they're doing, but there are still obvious risks. So
0: you come out of the Thanksgiving season. Right. And we see this huge spike that coincides with also the weather getting colder in the north and people are back inside more anyway. Can't eat outside in the restaurants. You can't do all the things that that we've been doing. So now we're here. Now we're going into the holiday season. And we're going to have people piled on top of people, including in my house. I'm going to have so many people here and God bless everybody. And I, I love that. I'm going to get a chance to see them, but there's no way that we're going to see less in the short term. Right. I mean, it, it almost <laughs> do the math. If people are gathering, you have to see more of that. Um, or am I completely wrong?
1: No, I, I you do. I think um, again, i think I think interactions among vaccinated and boosted people will likely not cause any problems. Um, there will be some breakthroughs, of course, but if everybody's and, and if people are wearing masks and stuff, i i I do think that it'll it'll be fine. It, it's more of like the you know, like everybody, and and again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody's decision making, but like there's always somebody in the group who might not be vaccinated, right? And then that person could carry it. One of the studies that I did when I was in academia was, you know, to the, like there was there were the measles, right? Measles was an eradicated disease in this country, but, and we have strict vaccine laws for going to school with, you know, with measles, right? You don't no one has measles in this country really. And, but overseas there are not as strict of vaccine laws again, you know, for, for measles. And so you would have something like Disneyland would have, you know, over, and this was like six years ago, had somebody from the UK come over and bring measles and give it to a bunch of kids who were in unvaccinated communities, um, and they w- they went from Disneyland and passed it to Utah, Salt Lake City, and like Seattle and, and around the country, and like that's really the risk, right? Is like somebody is carrying it and there are vulnerable people, and then there's that dispersion that happens after because we're all traveling to see family, and you know th- th- that's always the risk, and I think that the NFL explicitly in what they're doing right now is saying okay we're gonna we're going to accept that risk um for being able to play the rest of the regular season without much of a hiccup um and and deal with the consequences later and i guess you know to me i guess you know it is risky um because you know the the tail risk here is that there are a bunch of symptomatic people right that that end up coming from this and it's worse than what we would have had, for example, in the Cleveland situation, where a lot of asymptomatic people had to sit out a game um, because of the, the previous protocols.
0: Is it possible this could be a good thing? In other words, we all heard about herd immunity and different things. If this variant really is not as deadly, and a lot of people in the country who do not want to take vaccines end up catching this, does that assist herd immunity?
1: It could. I, I think that the hard part was, is, you know, you, you rewind back to like June of 2020 when I thought, you know, the, pre, the, the thought process was you could only get COVID once. And so, you know, much like the chicken pox, for example. And like, so if you get it once, then you're immune to it. And, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. And I think we've seen multiple people, Lamar Jackson being one who've gotten COVID multiple times and that that obviously is a risk that, that hurts the herd immunity argument because you know you, you can't you can get it multiple times. Um, that being said, like you know, there there is a chance, and like this is just like you know, evolution and, and just general mutation, where it will probably in all likelihood get less deadly and infectious the more you know we get into these variants, right? Because you think about the flu, right? Like the, the last pandemic we've had in this country was the 1919 Spanish flu. And that was extremely deadly, extremely infectious. And now the flu in this country is basically endemic and we just deal with it. People die of it for sure, but we just deal with it. And the interesting thing is not that many people take the flu shot relative to what we like, right? But the, but the, the less infectious, the less deadly a disease is, the more that you can accept people taking the vaccine less. So like the flu vaccine is only, you know, it's, it's nowhere close as, a, as effective as the COVID vaccine and it's nowhere near as taken, right? Like we have, you know, 70% of adults taking the COVID vaccine. That's not enough because of how infectious and deadly it is. But if you decrease the infectiousness and deadliness of COVID over time, then the number of us that are vaccinated for it will be enough. And just like it is for every endemic disease like the flu or even something like chickenpox.
0: Fill me up. Uh, so far this year... I have had three COVID shots, I have had two shingle shots and one flu shot. Honestly, if they told me I needed to take 47 vaccinations this year, I would walk in there and just go, go ahead, right? Uh, Now that doesn't make me smart, that doesn't make me anything Matter of fact, sometimes I go, that's just honestly too trusting of anybody, <laughs> but it's mm. kind of the way I feel about it. But there are so many people who feel just as strongly on the opposite side of it. And, and you know, I mean, we're going through this in the NFL, the fake vaccination cards, and you know, it's, it's just like, who would have ever dreamt of all the different things that we'll be talking about over the last two years of the NFL season?
1: Well, it's interesting because like one of the last years where I was a professor was the Ebola uh, epidemic or pandemic, depending upon how far it got. And every single uh, day in class, I would talk about it and talk about infectious diseases and how calculus could help you sort of understand it. And there were two deaths in America with Ebola, right? Like It is very much like very, very similar to what we deal with in football, where there are risks, there are rewards, there are tail risks, which is what if stuff really goes wrong? And, you know, we're in a once in a century sort of event here. And it's, it's interesting to sort of talk about that. But, but I think what you're saying is extremely important to, to, to talk about. When, when you defer to experts on stuff, right, like there, there is an increase in sort of the credibility of experts and, you know, other people defer to you on football, which I think is a perfectly reasonable as well, because you've earned that right and i think that that's maybe what's broken down a little bit right is is people spend their entire lives you know going to school to study this and it's just not being listened to or people and and i think that that's for example to bring it back to football i think when coaches look at somebody like me and say you're just not respecting the game with respect to like fourth down decisions and stuff that's what they're doing right they're they they've coached the game their entire lives they played it and some nerd over here um, with a bow tie is coming over and saying well you're doing it wrong right and, then, and 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 so it's some humility is is I think required for this entire discussion which is there are experts and there are risks and rewards and there are outcomes that don't always correlate with what the right decision is sometimes and we just have to be over time we have to trust that we're all working in good faith and i think in football i think we're closer to that than in real life which you know it's whatever um but but uh, they're all sort of tied together
0: yeah so the 60 40 sometimes you're on the 40% side and you still should make the same bet because there's still the 60% side or at least it's the way i look at it so eric you're brilliant it's always a pleasure to talk to you and um thanks for doing it again
1: of course thanks chris thanks for having
0: me on